Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on recent policy changes within the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Let our people have their letter. That sound is from protests from earlier this month. The DOC has banned book shipments inside of the prison and now scans inmate mail. You're getting a card that's photocopied. It's not the same thing. We think it's unconstitutional and we have made no secret that we are going to challenge the policy. We'll talk about the differences between prisoner rights and prisoner privileges. New technology that makes breast cancer screening more accessible. It's a little tiny device that fits in the palm of your hands. A Drexel Grad's portable product that can detect tumors just in time for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We'll be right back. Women in the workforce face all sorts of challenges. I'm KWW's Cherry Gregg. We've assembled a powerful group of politicians and professionals to address these issues for the very first Flashpoint Live. You can be part of the broadcast this Thursday at the KYW Broadcast Center. Seating is limited, so register now at kywnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint Live. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the rights of incarcerated individuals. In recent weeks, there have been protests in Philadelphia and in Harrisburg. The outrage comes after the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections issued a new policy banning shipment of books to inmates. They also changed their mail policy. Now, DOC officials will scan all mail and send photocopies to inmates. The new policy came out last month after a week's long lockdown. You see, multiple corrections officers had been sickened by alleged substances. And the response was new policies that advocates say go too far. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Sue Ming. Yay. She is the managing attorney at the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project. We also have Dr. Brian O'Neill. He's an associate professor at Westchester University with an expertise in criminal justice. And finally, we have Michael Wilson. He's a former juvenile lifer who spent nearly 47 years in the Pennsylvania correctional system. Welcome to Flashpoint, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, there's been quite a few changes to procedures on the inside, and a major one relates to mail. Assuming, can you lay out the new rules and then tell us, is this legal? My first answer is, I think it's not legal, and I also think it's unconscionable and a really burdensome and very a hardship on families. So first, regular mail. It used to be that people would send in regular mail, it would be checked for contraband, things that aren't allowed in the prison, and would go directly to the prisoners. Now, instead of going there, people have to send their mail to Florida, where it gets photocopied, scanned, and then uh, some type of copy is sent to the prisoner, including photos and cards. You don't ever get those original cards or photos. Legal mail is also a huge problem. Instead of the inmate being able to be present while they're watching it, um, they can see that process, but it's, again, photocopied. Those letters from the lawyers are kept the hard copies are kept perhaps for about 45 days. We don't know exactly. Um, and then a copy is again sent to the prisoner. Wow. And so th- that's, that raises red flags in my mind as an attorney. Absolutely. Uh, we have a, l- a lot of problems with the legal mail issue. We think it's unconstitutional. And we have made no secret that we are going to challenge the policy. We've gotten a lot of complaints from our clients. They've witnessed guards while they're photocopying it, looking at the mail. We've gotten phone calls that indicated that 
prison staff had looked at it to check signatures. Um, we have no assurance that it's kept confidential. And in fact, we did consult an ethics expert who said that it's a challenge and perhaps even a violation of our attorney's duty of confidentiality to our client. So, Dr. O'Neill, when you hear this, what rings in your mind? Well, it's very frustrating um, because I've been teaching courses in prison for about 20 years, mm -hmm. four inst different institutions, teaching this semester at SCI Chester through the Inside Out program that started at Temple University. So it's half inmates, half Westchester students. Naturally, there's some books. Yeah. And fortunately, I went in before the class started, the week before, and distributed books. So the Inside Guys, almost everybody has one. The following week is when the book ban happened. Yeah. Had that happened the week prior, I wouldn't have been able to have a class at all. And let's just be clear. The books, you know, people can no longer mail books from right. outside the prison to people inside the prison. So that also means you can't bring books inside the correct. prison. Yeah, and initially I asked SCI Chester, is, is this going to affect my class? They said, no, no, it doesn't apply to you. And when I got to the prison that day, <laughs> they said, no books, nothing's coming in. Fortunately, we've been able to get photocopies weeks ahead of time of different reading assignments. And the institution was pretty good about doing that if I electronically send things to a contact person at the prison. But as far as in the future, it's going to be very difficult because I want electronic versions of books, which requires a tablet which is about 150 bucks. Mm. And that's going to eliminate a lot of folks from being able to take the classes. It's going to be way too expensive. Now, our university can, can certainly foot the price of books, but I think asking them to pay for $150 each person for a tablet, that's not going to work. Michael, you spent a long time in prison. Tell people a little bit about your story and how were how is these outside communications important to you? You know, I thank God that I was released after 46 years, six months, and one day. I kept a lot of my letters that I had while I was inside. Just imagine, man, that here, when I first went in, it was totally different from what it is now. So you receive a letter from someone that you love and you care about. You, you have a chance to look at their writing, how they express themselves, um, this perfume or whatever may be on the letter or just something about the letter, the tangible of being close to that person, being inside a prison. Now you're getting a letter that's photocopied. You're getting a card that's photocopied. It's not the same thing. You don't still have that same connection with that person. You know, mom will always say, we write letters because you can say more. It's not the same thing. So I can understand what those individuals inside the wall or behind the fence feel. Something is being taken from them. As a juvenile lifer inside, I did a lot of writing. I kept a lot of the letters of the people that have written me over the years. And I, use, and I keep that for a reason because it tells a story about me and them. That's a connection to the to the outside in, in many, many ways. So, Ming, you think about this. I mean, these individuals are, are in prison. People say, hey, well, you know, why are they worried about books? Why are they worried about mail? I mean, but prisoners have rights. Absolutely, prisoners have rights. It's the foundation of our Constitution and our society. In the 1700s, we determined that there's a prohibition against cruel, unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. So there are certain rights and guarantees that even prisoners have. You're not sentenced to be abused in prison. You're sentenced to lose your freedom. You have a right to access to medical care. You have a right not to be abused or assaulted or sexually assaulted in prison. Uh, similarly, the conditions have to be humane. Even more broadly, we as a society really need to look at prisoners as humans and what they are going to be and who they are they going to be when they come out. And so all these practices, I think, go counter to both the legal end as well as the hu human end. Dr. Goyno, you went in a little bit about how going inside of prison 
And that actually prepares people for when, assuming a, she said, when they come out. And I can tell you that far better students inside prison than all my other students. They're much more active learners. They take it more seriously. Not only do they read the books, I'll go into class and they'll ask me about something the author said on page 52. What did he mean by that? I mean, that level of interest I don't find in my other students, quite frankly. So they take it very seriously, even though the guys are not earning a degree through this. Now, I've taught in classes where they did earn a degree, but I've noticed no difference between the work effort between those folks and the ones that are just earning a certificate. They still put out a lot of very hard energy. They write me papers. They type the papers. They stand in line to use a typewriter at Chester because there's only a couple typewriters available so they can hand it to me typewritten. So, I mean, that kind of dedication I don't see a lot of times with normal traditional students. They don't have Internet access. They don't have the library at their fingertips like other students do. And yet they write high-quality things that are sometimes publishable. Wow. So and, and right now the, the guys well the guys are graded for prior to graded for being split up. They were interested in pursuing a master's program since they already finished the Villanova degree. Yeah, yeah. They're that advanced that that's where their interests are. When you heard about this this cost of books, everything that's happening, people looking at your mail, I mean what went through your mind? It was due to struggle with prisoners that allow for a lot of books and things to come into the prison. I went in in nineteen seventy. I left out in 2017. If the premise of the Department of Correction is rehabilitation, and rehabilitation is to restore to useful life any handicapped or delinquent person through therapy education, then that should be something that should be always given to the prisoners so they can have access to understanding what they need to do once they get about out of the prison system. The prison system has always been like that. They censor everything. Everything they do, they censor. They don't like the newspapers in there. They don't like to photograph it in there. You would have to get special permission to have that taken care of, to allow for that to go on in prison. Now, what he's saying about the tablets, a lot of them guys can't afford that. Michael talked a little bit about the censorship. Is there concern, um, Sue Ming? We, we absolutely do have those concerns, and we feel the book ban is inappropriate and improper as well. For example, one aspect of how it could be improper censorship is access to religious rights. So a lot of people actually learn and expand their horizons through learning about religion, and you have a First Amendment right to access religion. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when you're not looking at the main, like just your major Christian groups, a lot of people learn about that through books that they order, and they're not going to be able to do that if they're only allowed to read whatever books the DOC is saying. On top of that, um, there are many other concerns about what's going to be available on the tablets, not to mention sort of the economic side of this. Um, I think I did some calculations. If a prisoner makes 20 cents an hour, which is pretty common, um, they would have to work for 25 hours to, to pay for a $5 book, which if you were paid a minimum wage here in Pennsylvania, like $7.25, that's like paying $181 for a book. I mean, that's just ridiculous because we want to encourage reading. We want to encourage people to be able to be self-educated and expand. Um, on top of that, we think that any restrictions on topics and subjects are improper. I think the thing that we also have to consider is what the justification was for this ban in the first was, place. Which was contraband. Right. And, and a number of, of guards and people who work at the prison were sickened. That's never been documented that it came through contraband. And a lot of experts are very skeptical that it could have happened that way. And I think also when you're punishing volunteers and visitors based on 
very little evidence when most of your staff people might be the ones to be looking at as far as how contraband gets in a prison. And that hasn't even mentioned by the DOC. There's actually been several arrests this past year around the state of officers bringing in contraband. And you're talking about an undertrained, undereducated, underpaid staff. And it's a recipe for serious problems. And yet, so they look to people that are educators. Imagine a professor bringing in books. You'd have to believe that professor would consciously bring in drugs through the books. Mm-hmm. I would challenge them in the history of the DOC if that has ever happened. So it, it lacks common sense, this, this overall ban. The contraband argument, the sickening that was happening right. has been the excuse that folks have used to do right. these stricter. But it seemed like it was overbroad. And so, uh, Michael, could you talk a little bit about the, your transformation? You, you've been out for a while now. 17 months. Well, I think one of the um, things that really happened for me while being inside the prison, 12 years into my incarceration, I did as close to 47 I was granted one of the highest statuses that a life prisoner could receive living and working outside the wall of the prison, which allowed for me to interact with the community. Then I went on to reach the next highest status that a life prisoner could receive, and that was escorted leave status. The next one would be released from prison that allowed for me to go into the community and speak in colleges and with professors and college students about the youth problem within the cities of across America, mm-hmm. especially Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of interaction with people, personnel, and people within the community because where I worked it at, which was the staff kitchen. So I was always around people that came in and outside of the prison. So that allowed for me to grow as an individual. I was a boy when I went in there. But through my graduating with a college degree, received my my um, diploma from the, at first, and then vocational training, therapeutic training. I cultivated more through education and writing letters and communicating at various seminars that was going on within the prison system. And Suming, I mean, you represent, the organization represents inmates. And part of what people are dealing with, you know, like Michael said, and, and what Brian was saying, is this privileges thing. You get... They take away certain things from you, some people, but but it's not necessarily a privilege, having books and things. Could you talk about the difference between rights and privileges and things prisons take away that are okay to take away versus things like the rights? Sure. So some of the core rights that you have, like I mentioned before, you have Mm -hmm. a core right to proper, adequate medical care. You also have a right for freedom from violence. And you have a right to humane conditions. You also have things like First Amendment rights, access to the law, uh, religious rights. Um, and then similarly, you also have some other rights like uh, the Americans, uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, also applies to people in prison. So there are things that the prisons are allowed to take away, but they can't take them away in retaliation of you exercising your First Amendment rights to, say, file a grievance or to file a lawsuit. Um, so there are different parts of it that are absolute requirements that the prisons must provide. And then there are things that the courts do give prison some leeway. And what are those things? Uh, so, for example, you don't have the right to pick which prison you want to be at. So that, that can be very difficult because some people are placed in prisons very, very far away. Um, you have a right to be placed in a prison that's uh, going to be suitable for your needs. So let's say you have extreme medical care mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be placed in a place that's not going to help you with your medical care issues. Um, but they can send you to um, SCI Green even if you your family's in Philadelphia. There was a prison strike. 19 states participated, not Pennsylvania. 
multiple protests this year, especially after this new DOC policy. Why do you think all of this is happening now? There's a lot of backlash from all the oppressive and and hostile policies. And I think that we're seeing that these folks have a value. And there are some people now on the outside are also seeing that. That is causing a little bit of repercussions. And I think the grassroots, the families of these folks, mm-hmm. are very, very vocal and politically active. And a lot of the people that get out, in my experience, almost all the juvenile lifers, extremely politically active. Igniting that grassroots of families has been really important toward putting a spotlight on this and showing that these are humans, yeah, um, not monsters, and they have families, and these are very important contacts they need. And just being able to do something simple, like go to the visiting room and, and share food with your family, that's not even possible right now because of the vending machine ban. And that was supposed to be 30 days. And while the 30 days is gone, it's still happening. Do you think with this new DOC policy clamping down, how are people feeling after that? Hope is lost for a lot of individuals. It's something that you have to have. Mm-hmm. You have to believe within yourself. You have to strive hard towards trying to obtain your physical and personal freedom, even though the deck is stacked against you. Personally speaking, I always believed I was going to get out. I just didn't know when I was going to get out. And I always believed if I continued doing the things that I was doing, that eventually God would help me. I believe that. People that knew me inside where I was at, that's what I moved out on every day. And I got out. And maybe I, I can't write everybody. I can't send everybody money. And I can't visit everybody. But if I can continue to do what I'm doing, talking with you, the legislators, yeah. the senators, concerning this, because as a prisoner and as a human being first, that within 12 years, I should have been considered to get out. But it took 47 years for them to let me go. You have other individuals in there the same way. Yeah. And they need to be given an opportunity because they can give back to the community. Just like I'm trying to give back. Because this is Flashpoint, y'all, the time is up. So I got to I gotta ask you our final okay. question. What are the steps necessary to amplify the humanity of those behind the wall so that we can provide the type of living conditions that better prepare those on the inside for life on the outside. I would say communicate with the prisons, with the courts, the legal system, because that's from the perspective of a lawyer. But I think a lot of people out in the community don't understand the life inside a prison, and that can affect the legal system as well. What do you think? Well, I would also say using ex-offenders. For example, Luis Suave Gonzalez and I host the radio show on Usula Radio, which is an internet radio station in Philadelphia. We've had... Just every week we have a different guest from the criminal justice system. And he has also gone back to prison to speak to inmates about how he has made a successful transition. And I think that's extremely important because they're getting it from somebody who's actually been successful. And it gives them hope and shows them there's a way to do it. And I think being able to have people in those places Mm -hmm. to be mentors is a huge, huge part of it. Wonderful. Um, last one, word, one of the things I would have to say is that when you go back to the right to know law from the Department of Corrections concerning prisoners, prisoners have to understand they have a core group of people that's out here, family and friends, that can help them. The kind of money that we spend within the DOC on sugar and salt could be used to help bring about legislation, people representing us. Millions of dollars are being spent by prisoners, and all of it goes through the DOC. What I'm saying to prisoners, as I said when I was inside, you have to begin to educate your family and your friends to what this is about. They will help y'all on everything, but you have to let them know what this is about. You have to really begin to understand that you have to put aside all those other little differences that you have and really take a march towards trying to get your physical, personal freedom. And it could be done yeah. as a group. 
You ain't got to do nothing violent. Do it intellectually. And y'all can make something happen for yourselves within it. Y'all have the power because you have the money. If I could just add also one thing is we should really be voting in the next election that's coming up. Yeah. What, we as individuals? Everyone. I vote the first time I came home. I'm sure I never that's voted right. in my life. I just said I'm going to try. You know, and I did it. November 6th is coming. Right. And with that, I want to say thank you to Sue Meng Ye. Thank you to Dr. Brian O'Neill. And thank you to Michael Wilson for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank, thank you, you very too. much. Thank you. Next up, a technology that makes breast cancer screening more accessible. You really don't need any education in medicine to be able to use it. This Drexel grads new product that can detect tumors. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is breast cancer. And since October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you should know that it is the most commonly occurring cancer in women and the second most common cancer overall. Now, this year, more than 260,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in America and more than 40,000 will lose their lives. Well, Mahir Shah is CEO of UE Life Sciences, and his company is the licensee behind the technology that's involved in eye breast exam. Now, this is a portable, battery-operated machine that helps detect tumors in breast tissue. His goal is to make breast cancer screenings more accessible. Mahir, welcome. Hi, Cherry. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about eye breast exam. What's the problem that you wanted to solve? Ten years ago, I realized uh, with my partner, Matt Campisi, that 90% of the women around the world don't have access to any means of early detection of breast cancer. Mm. And the way cancer is right now growing, most of the disease is going to developing countries like China, India, you know, places in Africa. And women just don't have access to mammograms or any kind of, you know, sophisticated uh, machines or even expert doctors. And that's where the whole idea came. Can we, the engineers, come up with a unique way of detecting breast cancer? And so tell me about the machine itself. The machine is called iBreast Exam. Mm -hmm. And it's a little tiny device that fits in the palm of your hands. The whole device is uh, literally something I can hold in my hand. It's completely wireless and battery powered like our phones, and it pairs with a mobile phone. There is a mobile app, just like everything, you know, we use a mobile app. And the device is to be used by any health worker. It could be a technician. It could be a doctor. It could also be a social worker. Mm. You really don't need any uh, medic, you know, education in medicine to be able to use it. And the device kind of feels like a stethoscope on the breast, you know, think of it as a stethoscope on the breast. Uh, there is no pressure. There is no uh, uh, pain. Uh, certainly, there is no radiation. And the entire t- test takes about five or seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And right there, instantly, you get the results on the mobile app. If it finds a tumor or a lump, the app indicates that in red color. And so it's a very quick test to identify harder, stiffer breast tumors than the normal breast tissue. And so the, it's designed to do what? To tell, to alert of a possible issue. Not to say this person has cancer, but to say what? Correct. 
go get it, go get further checkups. Correct. So we call this pre-screening. We are pre-screening women for potential concerns or issues uh, that are ongoing, but that they are not suspecting. Uh, so this is for healthy women, asymptomatic, they don't have any concerns uh, going on, and this is a preventive test. So this is designed for every woman uh, above the age of 30, and this is designed to pick up early stages of lumps in the breast. Yeah, and so um, how does this make everything more accessible? Because what, more people have, will have access to this? Yes, so the device actually is uh, US FDA cleared, and already 150,000 women around the world have had one of these tests. Uh, we are working with uh, you know, governments and private hospitals, uh, nonprofits, uh, a whole variety of providers that are making this available to women. In fact, we are in uh, conversation with Susan G. Komen's chapter mm. in Philadelphia to see how we can help underserved populations right here in Philadelphia to come forward for getting tested and so that they can identify their breast cancer at an early stage. Yeah. And so this is something because usually, you know, for people who don't understand this, I mean, usually I had to, I got my first mammogram recently mm -hmm. um, and you, I had to go to a you know special place, not my normal uh, doctor's office, but I had to go to a radiology clinic where they had the big mammogram uh -huh. machine sure. and they did the, you know, they did my mammogram. But a lot of people don't can't go to these places, but you can go to a regular health clinic in the neighborhood and you they can use our breast exam. That's exactly right. Uh, we believe, and Susan Komen also is now thinking that, you know, nurse navigators or uh, community health advocates who are so, you know, uh, intertwined in the community and they, they know the members of the community, they can actually bring eye breast exam to the community instead of everybody having to come to a hospital or a radiology center. And, you know, the, the death rate in, for example, African-American women yeah. is 40% higher than white women in the United States. Uh, there are women in Appalachia. There are women that don't have adequate insurance. And uh, there are many different women that are not getting uh, access to early detection right here in the United States. And we believe that IBREST exam can help uh, map the clinical breast exam. It can help document the clinical breast exam and help promote uh, these women to come forward for further testing. Yeah, and so just you get the red flag on the eye breast exam, you know to then seek out uh, the the radiology clinic and get the full mammogram and, and whatever other testing. And, it, you know, exactly. and, and you know to go yes, do that. Yes, exactly. You know, uh, think of this as... Uh, you know, we do a blood pressure test. Mm. And if your blood pressure is high, you don't suddenly think that you're going to die of a heart attack. But if it's high, you should definitely go forward and get it checked out. And this is kind of like a preliminary test, which if it indicates an issue, uh, it definitely gives you the motivation to say, well, I should definitely get it further checked out. Yeah. And so how much does a machine like this cost? You know, uh, we think of this machine as what, how can we make it affordable for mm -hmm. every woman, right? And already in large-scale projects, we are making it available just for a few dollars for a test, less than $10 for a test. Mm -hmm. uh, there are places in India where we are making this available for $1 and $2 for a breast exam. So think about getting access to a high-technology innovation like this 
which has been through all the regulatory approvals and all the clinical studies, but for a very small price point. Yeah. Um, so that and that's our focus, you know, to make it accessible to women, uh, so that everyone can get a, a breast exam. And so let's back it up a little bit. You went to Drexel University, uh, studied yep. there, and this is where you created it. That's right. Uh, I breast exam is an invention from uh, Drexel University, and uh, that my my, my <clears throat> proud alma mater. And uh, there are you know two innovators from Drexel. Uh, Dr. Wan Shi and uh, Wei Hang Shi, who actually uh, came up with or invented a new sensor technology that can assess differences between stiff tissue and softer tissue. And this sensor is patented, uh, and you know, there's got multiple patents. And my company, UE Life Sciences, uh, licensed the technology from Drexel to develop it into a, a device, a machine, a product. And, you know, we've got amazing support from so many institutions yeah. from Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, uh, the University City Science Center. Uh, they have given a, a QED grant to this project. Our office is still at the Science Center. And we have received a major grant from Pennsylvania Department of Health. Uh, when we started this project, and, and without that grant, this device and this technology wouldn't have come this far. And how much was that grant? That was an $878,000 grant. And what did that help you do? That actually helped us take a lab prototype of the sensor and create a commercial prototype of this pro- and as a product. So it really allowed us to do all the lab testing, all the bench testing, allowed us to do all the product design, the engineering, the software, and then also a clinical study. So uh, I'm very happy to tell you that iBreast Exam has actually been through three clinical studies right here in Philadelphia. The first one was at Hahnemann Hospital right here. Uh, near the studio. Uh, the second one was at, um, at the Penn Medicine at University of Pennsylvania Health System. And we just finished enrolling 500 women in this clinical study at, at UPenn, Penn Medicine. And we are looking at the results and they look fantastic in, yeah. in its uh, accuracy and, and its ability to detect these small lumps. Are you guys including women of color in this? Because I know women of color, like you mentioned, 40% more likely to die from this. Absolutely. The study is designed in a way that it represents the community that it's, it's in. So it is having the same percentage of participants in the study as you would have out in the community. Yeah, because we're having people of color in, in clinical studies has been a big issue over time. So I'm yes. glad you guys made concerted effort to do that. And so um, what is your vision for this device? Um, you know, just... Here in the regionally and then uh, in the globally. Sure, uh, regionally, I am super excited to uh, you know consider a study, a project with area hospitals and uh, Susan Komen to really you know help reach out to women that are currently not getting uh, access to early detection, mm-hmm. and there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, more broadly speaking. I think iBreast exam can help a whole host of women. You know, women with dense breasts. Forty uh, percent of women in the U.S. have dense breasts. Uh, women of color, Latina women, you know, uh, Asian women, African American women, uh, but also then younger women below forty. You know, five five percent or so breast cancer happens in willow, women below forty yeah. when they're not even getting mammograms. So we'd like to provide this breast exam to younger women, uh, women with family history women that have this gene mutation called BRCA1 and BRCA2. So there are a variety of women that, mm-hmm. uh, that can benefit from IRIST exam at a national scale. 
Yeah. And where do you get your passion from for this device? You're a man. You're a man. No, I know. You know. And I'm wearing a pink shirt today. Uh, that helps. <laughs> yes. I got involved in medical technology about 15 years ago mm-hmm. when I realized that, you know, innovation and engineering can save lives. And that was mind, mind blowing for me. It, it really changed my life. And particularly breast cancer happened and, and I got involved because my mother-in-law was diagnosed with it. Uh, pretty much the time we got married. So at my wedding, she was wearing a wig because she was going through chemotherapy. And just, you know, seeing her journey and learning because of her, you know, this happening in our family, it really opened my eyes to this, this, this thing, whole thing as a, as a global issue and how I learned that women don't have access around the world to early detection while the disease is moving to the developing world. Your mother-in-law, did she, is she, is she fine? Is she, she is fine. She's absolutely fine. But she Touch had access to. She, she actually didn't get, she actually test, got it tested herself. She found the lump herself. Uh, and that's how most women find the, the problem themselves. And by the time you find it or you feel some pain, uh, it's too late. Yeah. And, but luckily your mother-in-law made it. Thank goodness. And she's a very strong woman, so. Yeah, but she. But if it had gotten detected earlier, yes. maybe it wouldn't have been as severe. Yes. So the, the benefits of early detections are it definitely it, you know lengthens your life and the quality of life. You know you live longer and you live better. Uh, the cost of treatment and the veracity of treatment is less. You know it's it's uh, you don't have to remove the whole breast. You could do a, a, a lumpectomy and conserve the breast. So there are lots of advantages to having to detect. Uh, you know, breast cancer is a preventable disease. It's a preventable death. Women don't have to die in 2018 due to breast cancer. And that's what I think we are trying to make happen. If you get them in front of treatment soon enough, you can save that person's life. And that's what I breast exam is designed to do. That's, it. that's absolutely what we are focused to do, yes. Yeah, and so where can people find out more information about I breast exam and maybe suggest this? They work for a nonprofit that helps women or does health services. Sure. Please visit uh, www.ibreastexam.com, ibreastexam.com, and all the information you want is right there. Yeah, and so Mihir Shaw, founder and CEO of UE Life Sciences, they are working to get eye breast exam in as many places as possible. As many women as possible. We have a billion to go. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for being on Flashpoint. Thanks, Jen. Next up, they bring art to underserved communities. We went out to the people and reached out. What would you like to see? What would you like to do? The effort to make positive change and the star-studded gala here in Philadelphia that'll pay for it all. We'll be right back. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the tweets with Flashpoint associate producer, Brianna Bond. Hey, Brianna. That's right. We're taking it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So we had two polls again, Cherry. Let's get right into it. Hashtag, where's grandma? Yes, that was a story this week with a heartbreaking story about some of the cracks in the guardianship system uh, and the need for individuals to check in on grandma. In this case, they didn't. So we polled you, when's the last time you checked on grandma? Who do you think was at fault? So the options were family, didn't visit, guardian, didn't call, everybody's messed up, and too sad to say. Results, very few people said that the guardian was at fault because they didn't call. Only 6%. The top answer with 50% was everybody messed up. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it was sad. And I'll admit the family did not reach out to their grandma for seven months. They had spoken to her only a couple of weeks before she passed, though. And um, seven months went by and the Guardian never called them when she passed and said she died. And so I think the big issue in that story was he didn't tell them where her, she was buried. Yeah. And so that I think that he should have probably told them that information. That was very sad. Uh, 28% of people said the family was actually at fault because they didn't visit. Yeah, it's a very, um, this was a very polarizing story. People had have strong feelings about grandmothers. They do. I have strong feelings about my grandmother, Cherry. <laughs> Me so too. Do you. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Okay, so the next question that we polled you was, are prisoners' rights just as important as those of free citizens? The options were, no, they forfeited rights. Yes, still human, complicated issue, and I don't know. The top answer was, yes, still human with 44%. Yeah, because everybody who's incarcerated, majority of them come home. They're people's brothers, people's fathers, people's Mm -hmm. sons, human beings. But you might be surprised to know that not too far behind that 44% with 39%, very close, was no, they forfeited rights. Wow. Very close. Well, what they did was forfeit their freedom. Um, You know, when we talk about this on this week's Flashpoint show. So I hope people, once they hear the full panel discussion, we'll see how they feel about it. Yeah, we'll see. So that's all for Flashpoint on the tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Look for the hashtag Flashpoint Poll. Talk to you next time. Bye. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Some might say art is life in the city of Philadelphia. It's illustrated across the building, its colors, the personalities of people in every neighborhood. However, this life is not as vibrant for everyone. That's why Rush Arts Philadelphia is working to breathe new life into the arts for underrepresented youth and artists. The nonprofit's upcoming Art for Life Philadelphia event aims to supply the same rejuvenation. Here to tell us more about their ongoing effort is chairman and co-founder Danny Simmons. Welcome to Flashpoint. Hey, Jerry. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. So you had a nonprofit that was centered in New York. Right. And you relocated to Philadelphia. Tell us about that nonprofit. Uh, I realized that artists of color and children were not getting the art services that they deserved. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I myself am an artist, and I was looking around for a place to show my art and couldn't find any place that really wanted to show African-American art. It's changed a little, a lot since then, but 25 years ago. So I started Rush Philanthropic Arts Foundation with my brothers and Reverend Run and Run DMC did a fundraiser, and we raised $250,000, and we opened the gallery in Chelsea. And so we began the process of having shows and then um, teaching art and expanded from the gallery to five or six different schools within New York City. Mm -hmm. And so we did that for about 25 years. And I said, I need to take this beyond New York City because we had uh, two galleries in New York. And I had a big art show at the African-American Museum, a solo show. And I was coming back and forth for that. And I was seeing the city of Philadelphia more. Mm -hmm. And I said, this might be a good place. And so I started looking around, and I found a great house for myself, sold my place in Brooklyn, and bought an old building in Logan on Old York Road that was part of a bank and turned that into a gallery. And so one of the great things about that neighborhood and doing art in that neighborhood that there was really no other cultural resources there except for a library. 
So the people didn't have a gallery, didn't have any theater, this, that, and the other. And so when they saw I was opening a gallery, they were really excited that something cultural was going on for them in that neighborhood. The people feel like they are represented now. You know, we have grandmothers coming in with grandkids. We have people off the street. We have street people coming in. What's going on here? And uh, so this is going into our third year being there now. So tell us about your event. It's on November 3rd. And we're doing it at the Painted Bride, one of the last things that will happen there. We're honoring three different people. The first one is a guy named James Brantley, and he's a senior African-American artist who went to PAFA, and his work is in in the collection of PAFA, and he's a portrait painter. So we're honoring James for all the work he's done over the decades here. And then I'm honoring Jane Golden. Yes. Jane has transformed the face of this city. And so we we want to let the world know that we appreciate Jane. And she sponsored the mural that's in Logan now. And there were no murals in Logan. And there's another woman who had a print center, the Brodsky Center, that was at Rutgers that recently moved to PAFA, Judy Brodsky. And so we're honoring her, too. Wonderful. And mm. and it's a fun event. It's going to be a fun event. Uh, it's going to be a little different from the Hamptons. It's not going to be a sit-down dinner. It's not going to be 900 people under a tent. It's going to be in a, a recognized art space here in the city. And we changed the ticket price. You know, in, in the Hamptons, it was $1,500. <laughs> Come hang out. This is $150 because we mm-hmm. want to get younger people involved. And that's why I brought my nieces and nephews in. I have Reverend Run's kids working with me. I have Angela and Vanessa and Diggy showing up and JoJo and hopefully I'll get Run to show up. We want to make this event so it's not for rich people. We want it to be for everybody. And so we want young people there and we want young people to get into philanthropy to know that they can make a contribution, small contribution that might make a difference in, in the way that parts yeah. of their city react. And so what's your vision for Rush Arts? I mean, you, you're here in Philly now. This is we, we have a different vibe here, very different from New York. I really want to be a resource for people who would have no place else to go to show their work. And I also want to be a resource for kids that, you know, on a Saturday morning. The the point of it, community building through the arts. Instead of arts leading, the community building part, and we're using arts as the catalyst. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Philadelphia is the perfect place for art. I mean, Uh, this is an art sound. This is a food town. There's certain uh, things Philly is known for, and art is one of them. Well, one of the things I love about Philly, Philly feels like it's on the cusp of becoming something more. I feel like it's growing, Mm -hmm. and I want to grow with it. You know, yeah. New York is pretty much set. You know? And when I when I felt the vibe, it felt to me like New York in the 90s when things were just popping off. And when I was in Fort Greene, when Spike was getting his thing together, everybody was starting to do all kinds of creative things. That's what Philly feels like right now. Yeah, it's on the cusp. And I'm I, we're all in it. We're all in it. So yes. tell people where to go to get tickets. November 3rd, the Rush Philanthropic Arts Foundation is holding its annual benefit. Yeah, well, Rush Arts Philly, you can get tickets at rushphilanthropic.org. Keep doing what you're doing, Danny. And, you know, there will be celebrity sightings, he's telling us. Oh, there will be celebrity sightings. So check it out. Oh, and you know who our host is, Dana Williams. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, so we got got our Philly's own Dana here. Wonderful. So rushphilanthropic.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms and simply search 
Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As activist Amanda Chavez Barnes once said, the fight for human rights does not stop at the walls of prisons, jails, and detention centers. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.